So we are wrapping up a series today, Rubble to Return, and next week we're going to start a new series from the book of Galatians called Amazing Grace, um, and that's going to kind of run through the fall for us. Um, I'm really, really excited about starting that, but before we get there, I'm really, really excited about the way that Ezra Nehemiah ends, um, because it opened with this idea, this prophetic hope for Israel that they were going to return and rebuild after 70 years of exile, that they were going to come back into the land, that Yahweh was going to be king, Messiah was going to be king, and that all the nations of the world would be under his authority. And so that is the hope of Israel has come back waiting and, and really asking the question, all right, is this really it? Is this the moment we have been waiting for for centuries and for this specific group for the last 70 years? And as we've said, this series, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally kind of one book. They worked together. And so I know um, being a holiday weekend, there's probably some people who haven't been here. So I want to kind of take just a minute to catch you up real quick. But it, this first section is really broken down into three major parts. And it follows this pattern where there's a king's decree, God's going to raise up a leader, and then there's going to be some opposition that they face, and then there's going to be kind of an anticlimactic resolution or conclusion to the story. So in the first section where they're building the temple, um, you have Cyrus, who's the king, who issues a decree, Zerubbabel is the leader. They basically say, we don't need help from other people. And so they stall out in the building project of this temple. And then they come back to this point where they see the temple and the altar. And they're like, well, this isn't really what we were thinking it was going to be like. We were hoping for something different. We wanted it to be like it used to be. And in that middle section, Ezra 7 through 10, still my favorite section of scripture from the whole series, Artaxerxes is king. Ezra is this leader that's raised up. All of the people are intermarried, and Ezra comes back with this solution. All right, just everyone get divorced. Just everyone do it. It's, this is going to be perfect. This is exactly what God would want us to do. And it kind of ends, right, with that, do they do it? Do they not do it? What really happens? Because it just ends with this list of people who are intermarried. And it doesn't really tell you where it goes from there. And then the last section, Nehemiah 1 through 7, where they rebuild the walls, Artaxerxes is the king. Nehemiah is the leader who's raised up. They have some neighbors who bring opposition to their building project. And then we find out that, well, maybe the people weren't as committed as we thought they were. So it takes us to last week. We kind of ask the question of prophetic fulfillment or the hope, um, and we see the Torah being um, kind of the key where there's these readings that happen over and over, the confession of the people, their commitment, and their celebration. Last week was the week where they were like, all right, this time we're really going to do it. Like, I know we said we were going to do it then, and we didn't, but now, this time, now we're going to do it. And you kind of are asking that question, okay, so if you're promising, if you're writing all these commitments down, right, here, here are the commitments, we're not going to marry non-Jews, 
Um, we're not going to work on the Sabbath. Every seventh year, we're going to reset and cancel debts. We're going to pay our temple tax. Um, we're going to keep the fire burning on the altar, and we're going to contribute wood for it. We're going to um, give our first fruits and our tithes, and this is going to be kind of life under the law as the people of God. And then they make this pack, right, in, in chapter 10. The rest of the people, so it's gone through all the people who have sealed this binding agreement. And then it says this in chapter 10, verse 28. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all of the commands, regulations, decrees of the Lord our God. So now, like, we got it written down. And that's going to make a difference because... And, and so one of the things I was telling some people this week is like, the more I read this, the funnier it becomes to me. Like, I, I don't know if you see the humor in it, but it's over and over Israel like, all right, this time we're going to do it. Well, okay, we messed up again. But this time, now we're going to do it. All right, that didn't work. But now we're going to make a pack. And we're going to write it down, and we're going to seal it, and we're going to sign it, and now we're going to do it. And it's one of those things, kind of like the, the train wreck you know is going to happen, and you're like, oh, I can't watch. Because you kind of get an idea of what's fixing to happen, but we, we got to see. And, and so they make this, com this covenant, really, saying, all right, we're in, we're not messing up again. And then they dedicate the walls of the city. And they have two choirs, and they start on one side of the city, they march in opposite directions around the walls, they stop right in front of the temple, and it's this, it's kind of that kumbaya moment. All right, like, all right, we feel good, we're, we're spiritual, we're gonna do it. We, we got it this time. This time's going to be different. And, and you think, okay, it, is it? Is it really going to change? Is it going to be different now? And so um, they dedicate the walls, and it says the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. And then comes verse 44. At that time, the men, there were men that were appointed in charge of the storerooms of the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. So in the temple, there are these storerooms. And when people bring their offerings, when they bring their tithes, they are placed into these storerooms. And they are kept there. That is the purpose of them. And so there are some people that are put in charge from the fields around the towns. 
to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priest and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priest and Levites. So we're, we're in verse 45. They perform the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the musicians, gatekeepers, according to the commandments of David, the son of Solomon, and his son Solomon. So we have these storerooms. You're going to bring your gifts. You're going to bring your tithes. You're going to bring your offerings. And we're going to keep them in there because that's where they're supposed to go. There's these storerooms. That's their purpose. So then you come to 13, and it's the final act, really, of the story. All right, here, here's the question. Are they going to do it? Are they going to be faithful this time? Are they going to be obedient to the law this time? So verse um, 1 of chapter 13. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because, and, and real quick, who are the Ammonites and the Moabites? They are the descendants of Lot. And if you don't know that story, it's a, a little bit messed up, right? These angels come to, to Lot, and some people come, and they want to violate these visitors. They want to have sex with them. And so instead, Lot offers that they just have sex with his daughters. You can do whatever you want with them. And then later in the story, um, the daughters decide that we aren't going to have descendants, and so they get their father drunk, and he impregnates them. These are the descendants of Lot. Kind of a messed up story, right? June rolls around. You're not going to see Lot on a Father's Day card. So you, you have these descendants, the Moabites and the Ammonites, I'm sorry, the Ammonites and the Moabites, and they're not supposed to be in the assembly. So they hear this read. Now, verse 3. Um, when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. So we read the law. It says no Ammonites, no Moabites. We're just going to exclude everyone. No one who is of foreign descent can be a part of Israel and can be a part of the gathering. You're all excluded. And then in verse 4, before this, Elisha, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms, right, those are kind of important, of the house of our God, and he was a closely associated with Tobiah. Do you remember Tobiah from the story? Tobiah was one who brought opposition to Nehemiah for building the wall, and it tells us in the beginning, in, in verse 10 of chapter 2, when Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official, all right? So Tobiah is an Ammonite. He's opposed Nehemiah this whole time. So he was closely associated with Tobiah, 
and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also tithes of grain, new wine, and olive, um, olive oil prescribed by the Levites, musicians, the gatekeepers, as well as the contribution for the priests. Okay, so, so what's happening? You have Elishab, who is a priest, who basically makes one of the temple storerooms an Airbnb for Tobiah. Right? We, we heard that no Ammonite or Moabite can come in. We basically excluded everyone. And then you have a priest who's like, well, yeah, Tobiah will be, he'll be all right. He can, he can rent out a room from us. He can. And so he gives him this large room that was a storeroom in the temple. And you, you start to hear the story, okay, are, are they going to be faithful, right? They built the temple. They've kind of brought people back to the Torah. They've rebuilt the walls. They've made this covenant. Is this going to finally be the time? And then you have a priest who is basically made one of the enemies of Israel, a place to stay in the temple, right? And, and, and so you have the Torah and the temple, right? And is it important, right? Go, the, the Torah slide, go, there we go, or the temple, there we go, yeah. So the, the temple, is it still important? Tobiah, he'll be, an Ammonite will be fine. He can have a room there. All right. then, then just a little bit later, verse 8, but while this was going on, uh, this is probably my favorite part of the whole story, but while this was going on, this is Nehemiah, I was not in Jerusalem. Just so you know, I wasn't there to supervise this. It wasn't my fault. Um, for in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had entrusted to the king, and some, um, I had returned to the king. And so sometime later, um, I asked for permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil things that Elisha had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. So the, the temple, not, not so important to us. Then verse 10, I also learned that portions assigned to the Levites had not been assigned to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and stationed them at their post. And all of Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. So they had made this covenant, right? That we're going to follow the law. 
And we're going to bring for the Israelites and all those people serving our tithes, our gifts, and we're going to provide for them so that they have what they need. And then they basically stop. And so you have these musicians who their job is these groups just to sing every day, all day in the temple. Like, so that there's always worship going on. And you have these people who are over who are supposed to always be there. But they don't have anything because people aren't taking care of them like they're supposed to in the law. And so they just go home. Like, well, I guess, guess we're not going to be provided for. We're going to go do our own thing. And so they leave. And when he comes back, he's like, oh, Y'all need to come back, and y'all need to give and provide for them like we're supposed to. And then, verse 14, Nehemiah says, remember me for this. He restores to the way it's supposed to be. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and His services, and its services. Then, so you ask, you ask the question, is the, is the law important, right? Is the Torah important? In those days, verse 15, um, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in the grain, loading it on donkeys, together with wine and grapes and figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath, and therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. And people from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish of all kinds and merchandise and selling them to, in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. And I rebuked the nobles of Judah. And I said, what is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing? So that, um, like, And you read it, and it's like, Wait, you just promised that we're going to be obedient. And you just promised we're not going to work on the Sabbath. And you just promised like the law is going to be so, so important. And they're working on the Sabbath. And it's not just that it's the law. They had just made a a promise and a covenant like, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. Right? Everything's going to change now. We're going to be obedient to the Torah. Right? So the, the, the temple thing is messed up. Now the, the Torah, like, we're, well, we're not really fully doing that either. Are, are you starting to see where this is headed? This is not going the way they anticipated. Verse 19. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought into the Sabbath um, or brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside of Jerusalem, but I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And from that time on, um, time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. And so now this, these gates they've built for this city, they're basically using to hide themselves and hide what they're doing. Right? The, the, the walls are important to us 
And then again, Nehemiah, remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy according to your great love. Like you have Nehemiah who's like, I'm not, a, not really a part of this. I'm trying to keep these people in line, doing what they're supposed to do. And it's not going real well. But I'm trying. So, so remember me for this. So the temple, Torah, now the walls. It's like everything they have been building toward as the people of God is not really being used so that they live out that calling to be the people of God. And moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or language of one another, of the other people. And I didn't did not know how to speak the language of, or they did not know how to speak the language of Judah, excuse me. And I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I love this. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair and made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to, your, uh, to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. So, so they start this basically going back on the covenant they had made. We're like, the very first thing they said, we're not going to intermarry anymore. And now they're intermarrying again. And God's problem wasn't really with them intermarrying. It wasn't this holy race. It was being a holy people. And his, his fear was that if they went and married, they would start to worship their gods. And so they make this covenant, this pact, like, we're not going to intermarry again. And then they start to intermarry again. So, so not only are they doing again what they said they wouldn't, like you just see everything unraveling. Everything that they work so hard to build. Right? So the, the temple, the walls... The Torah, the Torah, the walls, now the covenant. Like everything that was so, so important to us. You, you just see, and it's like they took an oath and they made a pact. And they signed it. And they said, we're not going back. And it's just kind of unraveling. Right? And then Nehemiah loses his cool. And he starts hitting people and pulling out their hair. Because he's just, I think, so frustrated with everything. And that's why I look at it and I just, I kind of laugh. I laugh at it. And I, I wonder, like, as you read this book, are there some, some takeaways for us? As you kind of wrap up, are there some things you walk away with and it's like, man, maybe, maybe we can learn from Israel. Maybe we can learn from Ezra, from Nehemiah. Like, the, the first question, is this really the prophetic hope? 
Is this what they have been waiting for? Like, we're going to return and rebuild, and now we're going to be under the Messiah, and He's going to be king, and all the nations are going to be welcomed here and under His rule and reign. Like, is, is this really what God imagined when He talked about redeeming His people? Has Israel changed? Is their life different now? Is this time really going to be different? And, and I think for me, like it highlights our tendency to try to give our attention to fixing the external and neglecting the internal. Right? I mean, think, think about Israel and their plans and their return. We're going to put an altar up, and we're going to have a temple so that it can be like it used to be, and we're going to bring it back to the Torah, and we're going to surround it, and we're going to read from it all day, and we're going to put up these walls, and we're going to make a covenant. And, and it's so many of these things are like external, but you never really get to the heart of it. I mean, I mean, think about like our lives, right? Like you say, I'm going to start committing myself to pray more. And, and so a lot of times what we'll do is we'll, we'll go out to the store and we'll pick out a new prayer journal. And we'll fix up a place that we're going to... And we do all these external things to make it right. But we never really address the heart. Right? We're, we're going to start reading the, the Word more, and so we're going, to, we're going to create a place where we can do it. And maybe we're going to go get a new Bible or a new plan, or we're going to do all these things. Instead of us just turning and surrendering our heart to the One who made it. And we focus so much on the external, and we neglect the internal, which was Israel's problem from the beginning. But it wasn't just Israel's problem. My guess is it's your problem. It's my problem. That, that, that's how we think, and that's how we... It's, it's the heart. Right? It, it comes back to the heart. That's what Jeremiah, that's what Ezekiel said was going to have to change if you were truly going to live as the people of God. And they were looking to the law to make them appear righteous. And in fact, it actually did the opposite. It showed them to be very unrighteous and very unholy. And it highlighted their inability to do it for themselves. And so for us, I think it highlights our need for a Savior. That we can't do it. Right? We, we aren't able to do what we said we were going to do. Because there's, there's far more stories in Scripture of, it seems like, who, people who got it wrong than the people who got it right. right? We, we always want to say, like, well, just, just read because they all... But that's the point of it. That, that is the point. That humanity is broken and it is decaying, and it is falling apart. And no matter how hard you try, 
or how many times you write it down and make a pack and seal it, that we still mess up. And I said, I see so much humor in this story, but I think the reason, as I thought about more, the reason I see so much humor in the story is because I see the humanity of the story. Like, I see this not as Israel, but I see this as Gary. Like, all right, this time is going to be different. This time I'm going to do it. This time I'm going to get a new notebook, and I'm going to write it down, and it's start over today. I make a pack. I make a promise. And it's humorous to me because it is me. Like, we're going to change. But whose strength is Israel relying on to change? Right? We're going to do it. We're strong enough. We're smart enough. We're committed enough. We've got it. Is this God's power to transform and change them? Or is this their hope in their strength that's going to change them. And so finally, the, the last thing I just walk away with is the hope of the gospel. Right? The, the message of the gospel is that we can't. We are incapable of it. And we must rely on Jesus. Like at the end of the day, no matter how hard you try, you're still going to fall short of God's glory. You're still going to fall short of living as the people of God and representing Him in this world. At the end of the day, you can't. There's a story in Ezekiel. You remember the story of the dry bones? Where he walks into this valley and all he sees is these dry bones in this valley. And God said, well, can these bones come back to life? And Ezekiel's like, well, I mean, I don't think so, but God, you can do whatever you want. And he says, I want you to prophesy, Ezekiel. I want you to, to pray, and I want these bone, you to pray for these bones to come back to life. And he does. He prays. And God says, now I'm going to start to put flesh on them. And I'm going to start to give them tendons and muscles, and I'm going to breathe life into them. And it's one of those things, like you look at those dry bones, and you say, there is no possible way that that can happen. But it can. And it's not because of what Ezekiel is going to do and because of his strength. It's because of what God is going to do. Right? And, the, and the bottom line is... This room is full of dry bones that cannot live on our own. It is simply because of the grace of God, the grace of Jesus, that you have life and that you have hope. And, and so often, we want to be the people who got it right. We want everyone to know we're, we're the ones that are right. But here's the problem. When the church postures itself as the ones who got it right, it drastically minimizes our need and reliance on Jesus. 
when we're the ones who got it right and everyone else got it wrong, then it's, hey, look at us and look what we're doing and we got it right. But that's not the truth. The truth is we desperately need Jesus. Because it is not about you getting it right to be righteous before a holy God. It is about the power and the work of Christ in your life. And it is about nothing else. Does Israel get it right? Like, is this time going to be different for you? Is this time really going to be different than before? Because what if it's not about you saying, all right, now, I got it. What if the gospel is simply about you saying, God, I don't got it. And today, I am surrendering everything I have and all that I am because I do believe you've got it. That takes a lot of trust. That takes a lot of trust to surrender and to say, God, I'm, I'm not who you've asked me to be. I'm not who you've called me to be. And I'm okay with that because I trust you. And I trust that you've declared me righteous not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Father, for all the ways that we mess up, for all the ways that we fall, we thank you again for your grace. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for calling us. We thank you for, um, Father, just somehow overlooking our ignorance, overlooking our pride, our arrogance, and so, somehow, Father, still loving us enough to call us yours. And so, Father, today, once again, may we surrender all that we have and all that we are to King Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.